following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. So we are continuing our course on self-knowledge, which we've initiated a few weeks ago. And uh, we've been discussing in synthesis the nature of spiritual awakening, comprehension, and cognizance of the divine, which is within us, as well as some means and methods for how we can acquire that cognizance that awakening for ourselves. So we were talking about the nature of consciousness. What does it mean to be awakened? What does it mean to be perceptive? And we've explained in synthesis how perception is the root of thought. It is the root of emotion. And it is the root of impulse, instinct, will, desire, etc., and is the very source from which perception springs. And in the spirit of uh, the Gnostic doctrine, which encompasses all religions, we've been explaining this teaching of self-awareness, self-knowledge, how to experience the divine, in accordance with the mysticism of the Middle East, to demonstrate that this teaching is more than uh, from the Christian standpoint. We think of Gnosis in, the, in terms of scholasticism today as being the study of the Christian Gospels that were not uh, canonized. But the Greek word Gnosis is knowledge. Knowledge that we acquire from experience. And has nothing to do with intellectualism, scholasticism, theorizing, debating. Instead, it's uh, a concrete and factual uh, Knowledge of divinity. Uh, so we were explaining uh, this teaching in relation to the mysticism of Islam. And Islam in Arabic means submission to God's will. Whether we are Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, etc. We learn to submit to the will of divinity within us by developing that awareness, developing that understanding. And uh, Gnosis has been known in different terms, in different religions. 
But amongst the Sufis, the mystics of uh, Islam, they denominate this knowledge marifa, knowledge, or hakika, which means the truth. In this lecture, we're going to explain what we need to do in order to develop that awareness further, that knowledge further. It is a spiritual discipline. It is a method. It is based on cause and effect. Spiritual life is based upon the implementation of specific factors, which is why different religions have given different codified rules of conduct in order to know divinity, whether it's the Ten Commandments of Judaism, whether it's the Ten Meritorious or Non-Meritorious Actions of Buddhism, or whether it is uh, the written commandments given in the Quran amongst the Muslims and the Sufis. And each tradition has its own specific instructions and conduct of how to discipline the mind. So Buddhism, we speak about the need to discipline the mind in order to experience the serenity of no thought, to cease thinking, conceptualizing, preoccupation with the intellect, which produces our problems and our sufferings. So the self-knowledge we seek is to train ourselves, to train our minds, train our bodies, our hearts, to know divinity and to understand that within our psyche that obscures that divine uh, intelligence, which in religion, have been, uh, religions have given different names, whether it is uh, the inner Buddha, which as we explained, Buddha means awakened one, to be cognizant to be pristine, to be clear in thought, sentiment, and being. Or the, as amongst the Muslims, there's Allah, which in the Hebrew equivalent is El, which is where you get many names of angels, Samael, Michael, Gabriel, etc. So it is that self we seek to understand. But of course, to get there, we need to learn how to implement the appropriate causes to uh, reap the specific effects we seek. And as the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition stated, his name is Samael Unveor, consciousness can only be awakened by upright efforts and conscious works, or conscious works and upright efforts. So we're going to explain today specifically the parameters and the difficulties one faces when developing an introspection into the psyche. What are the obstacles we face? And what are some teachings that we can use to train a undisciplined mind in order to make it a disciplined and peaceful mind. Precisely because a mind that is uh, as it currently is, identifying with our daily problems, perhaps having arguments with loved ones, co-workers, conflicts, any state of suffering indicates and points to causes within our psyche which need to be comprehended. And it is by comprehending the source of the conflicts we experience within ourselves, within our interior, in order that we can attain the peace of mind and the serenity of a divine and clear mind, one that fully reflects to its fullest potential the heavenly states of being, as we were discussing. So we will reiterate a point we made in our last lecture. 
And uh, we were discussing the nature of consciousness and what does it mean to be awake? And what does it mean to be unconscious? Currently as we are in our preoccupations with our daily struggle, uh, the engagement with work, uh, the many obligations and responsibilities we are subjected to, we state uh, clearly that these in themselves form distractions. How we approach life, how we engage with life, is determined by our quality of mind, our state of being. It is impossible to escape from the necessaries of life, but we can change our psychological attitude, how we approach it. And as we were talking, as we were speaking, our physical senses may be awake. Sight, taste, touch, hearing, feeling, etc. These in themselves indicate a state of physical wakefulness. But as in terms of the spiritual potential we have, we uh, state that this potential is asleep. It is not active. It is not fully developed to its potential. Which is demonstrated by the Sufi proverb, he who knows himself knows his Lord. If we were to know ourselves completely, we would know divinity completely, according to the uh, ancient traditions. And so, we often speak of the need for awareness of uh, remembrance of the divine, becoming cognizant of that presence within us. Specifically, uh, we have a following quote from uh, the scripture we've been quoting extensively in this course, the Risala, or principles of Sufism, or you could say Gnosticism as well. They share the same roots. And this following quote is from a Sufi master by the name of Al-Wasati. He was asked about the uh, practice of remembrance and said, It is leaving the enclosed court of unconsciousness for the vast space of contemplation through the power of fearing him and the intensity of loving him. So, again, divinity is not some old man in the clouds, some anthropomorphic figure who, as we were saying, distributes lightning bolts upon this anthill of humanity to make us suffer. That God does not exist, which is why Friedrich Nietzsche said God is dead, or that Judeo-Christian God is dead, doesn't exist. Instead, God we're speaking of is a presence, is a force, an intelligence, which is within us. And as we explain in the story of the allegory of the cave, there is a process by which one escapes from that shackling and conditioning of the mind, of the psyche, of the consciousness, in order to experience higher states of unconditionality, of liberation, of freedom from negative psychological states, such as pride, fear, anger, vanity, lust, etc. The seven deadly sins, we could say, according to some traditions. So uh, we were explaining that uh, what we seek to develop is consciousness free from conditions. So in a moment of anger, we are conditioned by anger. We see through the object of that desire. We want to fulfill what that desire craves from us. And this, uh, ma- this you could say, a magnetic pull of forces in ourselves to act in a certain way, in a negative way, demonstrates to us that we don't have full control, that we don't have full knowledge of ourselves, that we are trapped in a given moment by exterior causes and conditions to constantly react to the exterior world in a way that is harmful, that is 
detrimental for ourselves and for others. So when someone criticizes us, uh, perhaps a sentiment of pride emerges that we feel that we are better than the other person, followed by anger that person should not have, uh, with the thought that person should not have insulted me, followed by another train of thought. Well, I'll just forget about it. Perhaps uh, that won't affect my job so much. We constantly go through a chain of associative thinking, of thoughts, feelings, and emotions, which pull at us in response to the external world, which in itself demonstrates that we are mechanical. Meaning that we are like a machine in which anyone can press any button they wish, say anything they wish, and we will respond according to that wish, according to that impetus. Which is why uh, Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet when he was confronted and trying to, um, uh, trying to fool the people of his household who were spying on him. You think, uh, he said, Splud, you think I'm easier to be played upon than a pipe? Call me what instrument you will, though you fret me, you cannot play upon me. Meaning, the world is constantly playing its notes upon our psyche. Certain individuals may provoke a response that they seek against our will. We say, oh, that person may, uh, someone I dislike strongly. And um, the fact that we seldom lack, or we, we, we lack, we tend to lack full autonomy in certain situations illustrates that we are mechanical. If in a moment of anger we can step back from that sentiment, that feeling, and not give in to that uh, impulse that uh, indicates to us that we are controlling and stepping away from that conditioned mind, that negative self, and we are learning to see from a state of objectivity, which in itself creates a serene mind. So we want to be serene, peaceful. We want to know God. Anyone who approaches religion wants to know a quality of consciousness that is free from suffering. And the object of these studies is to understand the causes that produce our suffering and also the suffering of others and how to change them. And so we want to free ourselves from this conditioned mind, this tendency to react constantly to life. Instead, we want to learn how to respond in an objective, conscious, peaceable manner with virtue, with ethical discipline. Which brings us to the point of uh, the necessity of training the mind, disciplining that which is conditioned within us. We have in this image uh, a woman being crowned by an angel and the following uh, poem by the mystic Sufi poet uh, Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi where he states the importance of this discipline of mind. Let's ask God to help us to self-control. For one who lacks it, lacks his grace. The undisciplined person doesn't wrong himself alone, but sets fire to the whole world. Discipline enabled heaven to be filled with light. Discipline enabled the angels to be immaculate and holy. The peacock's plumage is his enemy. The world is the mountain, and each action the shout that echoes back. The discipline and rough treatment are a furnace to extract the silver from the dross. So what is this peacock's plumage? 
If we examine our mind, we see that we may entail or contain many elements of pride, a sense of self that feels important, that does not want to be uh, criticized or rejected or uh, ostracized. So we are, in spiritual language, that peacock. All of us possess a sense of self-esteem that does not want to be hurt. Right? It's precisely this subjective, egotistical sense of self which is the uh, impetus of our suffering. So that plumage, that self-image we carry in our mind and our psyche is our enemy. Instead, we have a different image in the soul that can exist if we know how to, change, how to develop it, which is the divine, that divine image. But usually we have our own psychological tendencies such as pride, self-esteem, self-importance, arrogance, etc., that we adorn ourselves with, like the peacock. And the world is the mountain, In each action, the shout that echoes back, meaning cause and effect. There are psychological causes for happiness, and there are also physical causes for uh, happiness and sorrow. Certain actions will produce harmful results. We know this, obviously, from religion. But psychologically speaking, we have elements that we ignore, sadly, because with the law of cause and effect, our psychological actions, meaning our thoughts, our feelings, our will, have an effect on others, have an effect within ourselves. Usually we tend to think that we exist in this bubble and that we, have, we could say what we want, feel what we want, think what we want, and that it won't have any uh, consequence. But uh, all spiritual studies, or better said, all genuine religions teach that we become what we think. Mind precedes phenomena, according to the Buddha in his Dhammapada. And so this discipline and rough treatment are a furnace to extract the silver from the dross. And what is that pure silver we seek to develop? Is the immaculate nature of the soul that has been removed of all of its conditions. The dross is the imperfections that we created. But by implementing a discipline, putting forth as the causes of a liberation, we could say, we free ourselves like a furnace. But of course, uh, I like how Rumi says that it's rough treatment. It's not pleasant to face one's mistakes and to confront them and to want to change them. So it takes a, a, a strong sense of heroism to want to overcome our causes that produce our suffering. And so this uh, spiritual discipline has been known in different religions and in a certain structure. There are three levels of instruction given throughout Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, etc. We can see that there are levels of spiritual discipline, levels of work, which have been taught in different languages in different ways. And in this, uh, in this image we have the three levels of instruction, introductory, intermediate, and advanced, in accordance with the Muslim doctrine. But I'm going to give you some other references to show the universality of this. So the introductory teachings have been known as Sharia, the exoteric doctrine of Islam. In Judaism, we call it the body of the doctrine, known as the Torah. So certain scriptures have certain levels of application to our life. And so in Judaism, we say that... Uh, the Torah is the body of the doctrine, the introduction to the, the Jewish mysticism. We also have an intermediate teaching, um, which is known as Tariqah in Arabic, 
meaning the path. This is the mesoteric or middle way into the heart of religion. And in Judaism, we find the, this mystical path is known as by the Talmud, which is a philosophical discourse on the, on the, uh, on the Torah. And then likewise, we have an advanced teaching, an advanced discipline, which in Arabic is known as marifa or, or hakika, meaning knowledge or truth. This is the esoteric teaching, the hidden teaching, a very high level of discipline we can, we can access if we know how. And so in uh, Judaism, we say that uh, these advanced teaching is known as the Zohar, or known by the body of literature in the Kabbalistic tradition uh, by that scripture, the uh, Book of Splendors, Zohar. Buddhism has its own application to this. The introductory level is known as Shravakayana. Shravaka means listener, he who hears. Yana means vehicle or uh, level of instruction or practice. And all of us who begin any spiritual studies, we have to hear first. We learn to listen, and then we learn to apply it in our practice and our path, which develops into the intermediate teaching, which is when we're applying this knowledge and making it practical and where we're getting results, known as tariqa. In uh, Buddhism, this intermediate path is known as Mahayana, very famous in relation to Tibetan Buddhism. Maha means great, yana means vehicle. This level of discipline is uh, much more advanced. In the first level of teaching, introductory discipline, we are seeking to develop our own spirituality for ourselves. Meaning we wish to stop suffering. And so we seek to put in place the causes that are going to help us to prevent us from suffering further. In this intermediate path, our spirituality and spiritual discipline is based more on helping others. Whereas we benefited our own selves, we developed some equanimity of mind, and then with our spirituality, we seek to help the spirituality of others or to help others in a positive sense in any way we are capable. And then with the advanced teaching, it uh, uh, pertains to more expedient methods known as tantrayana in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, tantra is... Uh, or we could say the diamond vehicle, the superior vehicle, which has uh, practices and methods which are very transcendental, which require a lot of purity of mind in order to enact. So there are levels of instruction, levels of discipline we engage with. You could say that in the uh, opening uh, level, Sharia, relates to how we discipline ourselves. How do we curtail negative habits? And this word Sharia, of course, if we're familiar with the news, has a lot of baggage in the Middle East, uh, pertains to punitive laws in relation to Muslim countries. But according to the Sufis, this term is more internal, specific. It pertains to how do we, what are the modes of conduct we engage with to be spiritual. It doesn't mean to um, uh, follow the certain tr- the laws of uh, certain countries. Instead, it means to discipline the mind. That's the, how the Sufis denominate this teaching. Um, and then with the intermediate paths, we uh, seek to cultivate our, our knowledge deeper in a more pro- profound manner. But uh, the thing to remember with this level, uh, with these gradations of discipline, um, we seek to move from a self-centered focus to a focus on others. And it doesn't mean that one has to be a, a teacher or a preacher or to be giving some form of uh, transmission of knowledge in this sense, but instead it could pertain to uh, whatever obligation we are placed with in life in which divinity places us so that we can better ourselves.
Now, uh, the Sufis explain these three paths, the introductory, intermediate, and the advanced levels of discipline in the following manner. This is from Principles of Sufism by Al-Kushari, where he elaborates on uh, points we made previously. The divine law, Sharia, commands one to the duty of servanthood. The way, Tariqah, or the inner reality, Hakikah, is the contemplation of divine lordship. And so, also in terms of this discipline, with Sharia, we are learning to curtail negative habits, followed by the Ten Commandments, or other codes of conduct. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't fornicate, don't commit adultery, don't harm others. This is in order to uh, help us to serve divinity in our physical life. But uh, as we explained previously, the inner reality or that advanced stage of practice is, actually, is the actual experience of the divine. Hakika. Hak means truth in Arabic. And this truth is, uh, we're given the Arabic terms, but this truth is known in different names. It just uh, depends on the tradition you are referring to. And so the way, hakikah, is to contemplate divine lordship, meaning to know and experience the divine. Contemplation, meditation, these are states of consciousness in which one is fully connected with our source in a divine sense. And so one thing we will emphasize, that sharia is the discipline we engage with in our life in order to serve the divine. We could say that this is a form of fear, but not in an egotistical sense. People often talk about fearing God. And of course, that has a lot of uh, baggage associated with it too. We're not talking about fear from uh, some person or because to not commit an action because someone told us, but because we know that the consequences will produce suffering and then we feel that remorse, that sense of conscience that knows that we should not behave in that way. And uh, sharia is to fear God, meaning to fear the consequences of one's actions because we are all because we are accountable before the divine and that our actions, depending on how we live, produce happiness or sorrow for others. And we are weighed and evaluated based on that by our own divinity, by our own being, we could say. And then uh, we could say, going back to the quote from the beginning on, by Al-Wasati, the intensity of loving him, the intensity of loving the divine, that is hakika, the path of the truth. That form of discipline in which someone as a master, spiritually speaking, is accessing God all the time and has no forgetfulness. That's a very high level of discipline, we could say. In the beginning, we're trying to be mindful, be aware of ourselves, moment by moment, day by day, through self-observation, self-awareness. And then when we learn to access those deeper states of concentration and meditation, as well as experience of the divine, we access those higher levels, known as hakika in which we, in the beginning, we are fearing God, meaning to fear the consequences of our actions, to have a sense of caution, to know that what we do cannot be taken away. Every action has a consequence. But if you wish to overcome the consequences of wrong action, what we do is seek to replace it with a superior action. Because the superior law, the divine law above, transcends our daily life. And so it can... Trans, uh, overcome those mistaken actions we engage with. So in the beginning, we fear God. And in the end, we love God because we know Him directly. And so we also explained the following quote previously. 
Outward religious practice not confirmed by inner reality is not acceptable. Inner reality not anchored by outward religious practice is not acceptable. Divine law brings obligation upon the creation, which is us, the soul, while the way is founded upon the free action or experience of the real. The divine law, Sharia, is that you serve him. The way is that you see him. So we mentioned that in order to experience God, we need to implement the methods that are going to give us the results we seek. And that uh, it is not enough just to uh, want to have the experience. We have to practice. And of course, in this tradition, the Gnostic tradition, we have many exercises, which we give at the end of each lecture, that you can engage with so that you can come to know divinity directly. So the divine law is doing what you have been ordered to do. Hakikah, the truth, is bearing witness to what he has determined and ordained, hidden and revealed. I heard uh, Abu Ali al-Dakak, who is the Sufi teacher of this writer, al-Kushari, say that in God's saying in the opening book of the Quran, Yaka nabudu, you we worship. This preserves the outward practice, the divine law. Yaka nastain, to you we turn for help, establishes the inner reality, the way. So you do we worship. We're putting forth causes to practice, spiritually speaking. And it's by implementing those practices that we can receive that grace. You cannot have one without the other. It's a simple law of cause and effect. In order to know God, we have to learn how to meditate, which is uh, something we'll be building up towards progressively in these lectures. And so know that religious obligation is a spiritual reality and that it was made necessary by His command. And spiritual reality as well as is a religious obligation and that the realizations of him were also made necessary by his command. So practice and experience, these have to go hand in hand and we need to cultivate both. So how do we do so? Discipline in a spiritual sense does not necessarily refer to some kind of uh, military exercises or a chore, something that is boring or... Uh, uh, it's in a negative sense. Instead, uh, this spiritual discipline is based upon the joy of experiencing the results. Whereby, when we engage with a whether it's a mantra, a sacred sound, or in meditation, we naturally see the benefits of our actions, and that we want to, we are more inclined to engage with that discipline. But of course, this type of uh, work implies a direction of will. Or better said, a redirection of will. And so uh, we need to learn how to develop a spiritual will, a conscious will, that does not obey the conditioning of the mind. It is will that is free of conditions. It knows how to act, to respond with equanimity, with serenity, with peace of mind, to any situation. And so this is the foundation uh, or the beginning of entering the, the path of spirituality. Irada, the will to find God, is the beginning of the path of spiritual travelers, the first title given to those who are determined to reach God Most High. This attribute is only called Irada because will is a preface to every undertaking. When the servant does not will, he does not carry out. Since this is the start of the enterprise of one who travels the path of God Almighty and Glorious, it is called will by analogy to the resolution involved at the beginning of everything else. And uh, the word irada relates, in Arabic relates to riada, which means discipline as well, which we're going to be talking about 
uh, in the next few slides. So again, as I mentioned to you, we seek to develop willpower free from conditions. A will that does not depend on anger, on fear, on resentment. We say that those negative psychological qualities are desires. They're conflicting wills that always push us to act in contrary ways, in contradictory ways. The willpower we seek to develop is one that is free of, un- of conditioning and belongs to the divine. But uh, the will uh, we have to uh, access, in order to access this, we have to abandon many habits, many forms of conditions. And in this graphic, we have the famous bacchanalias of Rome, the famous orgies and feasts where people abandon themselves to uh, alcohol and sex, indulging in uh, sensual pleasures at the expense of the soul. And this is a symbol for us, uh, at least in relation to this lecture, of how the mind is constantly addicted to sensations and experiences, wanting to uh, engage with certain habits, uh, certain, uh, certain impulses, which in themselves, when they are satiated, only come back more hungry, with more force. It is the mistake of pop psychology in, these, in this day and age that states that by feeding desire, you will reach a type of catharsis, meaning that there is a, it is nullified, it is annihilated. By feeding that desire, giving into what you want of an, in an egotistical sense, you will satiate that desire and it will go away. The truth is that by feeding desire, you strengthen it. By feeding that negative will, by giving into anger, we feed that anger. We, we, we strengthen that cave, as we were speaking of previously. Instead, we have to learn how to restrain the, that impulse, which is done precisely through uh, the effort of the pure consciousness, which in Gnostic psychology is known as essence, the essence of the divine. And so the Sufis emphasize the following in relation to the type of psychology we need to uh, develop and to abandon. Many people talked about the meaning of will, each expressing the extent it has manifested to his heart. Most shaykhs or teachers say that will means the abandonment of what has become habitual. What is habitual for people in the vast majority of cases is dwelling in the realms of unconsciousness, basing one's life upon the pursuit of the passions and inclining toward whatever one desires to call for. The spiritual aspirant is someone who has cast off all of this. So as I mentioned to you, the beginning of uh, accessing real spirituality is... Overcoming desire. Um, because I, I feel like this is pressing. When you take it all away, are you truly taking it all away? Because there's something that that must be left, especially if the desire is comes from somewhere. So, uh, good question. The desire uh, is a cage, is a shell, what we call an ego, a sense of I or self. And within that conditioning, within that shell, is the consciousness, part of our soul that's trapped. So if we want to uh, develop our spirituality, we have to break those cages. And then, and, then, and then you liberate the soul like the genie from Aladdin's lamp, which can grant you the wishes of any, desi- any, uh, any spiritual wish you long for. Really what you're saying is that we're taking the desire to find what's really there. Through comprehension of that defect, that desire, we learn to eliminate them and free the energy that's trapped inside. And that builds more consciousness, which develops our willpower further in order to accomplish greater spiritual work. 
But of course, to do that, we have to overcome the bacchanalia of the mind, meaning the, the mind's tendency to want to indulge in uh, sensations and um, negative habits, whether it be through uh, drinking alcohol to excess or that desire, that craving for sexuality, of indulging with uh, the impulses of the body, but without any sense of spirituality. So we talk extensively about the nature of uh, the use, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, how one can learn to use one's physicality, one's body, one's mind, one's heart, and one's uh, sexuality, one's creative energies in the body in order for it to develop one's spirituality. This is very well known in Tantric Buddhism, known as uh, in writings such as the Perfect Matrimony. But uh, in this topic, uh, we're talking about how to abandon the conditions in the mind of desire, of trying to feed, uh, feed cravings that can never be satiated. Instead, to develop equanimity and pure, serene will, one has to break the cage. But uh, when I talk about willpower, I don't refer to something rigid, something dogmatic, something uh, uh, impulsive. It refers to an effortless state of consciousness that knows how to act appropriately in any given circumstance. And uh, that type of willpower, we can taste it. We learn to meditate, to uh, awaken our perception. And so this type of will was illustrated by Jesus of Nazareth in his passion. And so um, we see here in this image, uh, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he physically demonstrated for us the path of spirituality and spiritual will that we need to fulfill in ourselves. Now, this path doesn't mean that we have to live like Jesus, meaning physically, how he did. Instead, it pertains to how we apply our, our psyche, our consciousness, to um, adhere to the values he taught. And so, uh, we have here, he's praying before his passion, knowing that he's going to be crucified. Where he stated, uh, thy will be done. Meaning, Father, if it is possible, take this cup of bitterness from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And this is a very powerful teaching about how the disciple who enters this teaching or this path finds that there are many uh, forms of bitterness one has to face in relation to confronting one's own uh, impurities, meaning uh, one's defects. And facing certain situations that are very challenging. But this is precisely the purging and the, the furnace in which the silver is extracted from the dross. He says, thy will be done, not mine. And it is this trust in the, to, into the divine will when, in which our will obeys the will of divinity in which we can access true peace and overcome our greatest problems. But every one of us will have his own type of uh, passion, we could say, ordeal, struggles, challenges, which we have to face and conquer. And so the Sufis teach the following uh, in relation to the relationship between our will and the divine. According to etymology, the disciple is he who possesses will, just as the knower is he who possesses knowledge, because the word belongs to the class of derived nouns. But in Sufi usage, the disciple is he who possesses no will at all, meaning no egotistical will, no self-will, me, myself, mine. It is a will that knows how to obey the divine commandments. Here, one who does not abandon will, or better said, egotistical will, cannot be called a disciple. 
just as linguistically one who does not possess will, meaning conscious will, spiritual will, cannot be called a disciple. So this is duality there, meaning it's written in a very enigmatic way to, to confuse people who were not initiated into the teaching. Instead, it's speaking in a very, uh, very objective sense, meaning if you want to develop real spirituality, you have to abandon all desire, all self-will, the sense of me, mine, and access the true self, which is beyond conditions. And so that was demonstrated by the path of the will of Christ. And in this process, we learn to strive against our own impurities, our own mind. It is through the path of confronting our own defects in which we learn to uh, acquire true peace. This is known as the doctrine of Mujahida in Arabic, which is where you get the word jihad. Now, the word jihad has many negative connotations today, especially with the news. Sadly, this teaching has degenerated. It's been misappropriated. Because the real meaning of the word jihad is not holy war. It is uh, striving to mortify the self, to confront the impurities of the psyche and to change them. Now, uh, Muhammad, the prophet, was asked by his companions after they were defending themselves from a group of, uh, I believe it was the Meccans, who were trying to kill him. And so, rightfully so, he needed to defend himself. The companions came with him and asked him, O Prophet Muhammad, what is... uh, 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 actually, the Prophet Muhammad stated, uh, we are now leaving the lesser holy war to the greater holy war. And the companions asked, well, what, O Muhammad, is the greater holy war and the lesser holy war? The lesser war, he said, is to defend yourself or to fight in battle. But the greater holy war is to fight against your own desires, your own defects, your own wishes, and, to dev- and really to do the divine will. And so, uh, in Arabic, there are other words for, for war, but jihad, unfortunately, or, or through time, has been translated to have that meaning. But jihad means striving, to fight against one's own afflictions. And this is the basis of spirituality, confronting and overcoming our own lower self, our conditioned self, and learning to liberate the soul that's trapped in it by comprehending those cages and eliminating them. So we have the following quote from the Risala of uh, Kushari, Principles of Sufism, that elaborates on these points. Know that the foundation and rationale of struggle or striving, Mujahida, is to wean the ego from what is familiar to it and to induce it to oppose its desires, passions at all times. And we explained before, the ego is uh, this negative self, which says, me, mine, I must have, I must do, I must act. And, of course, this term has become popularized in uh, modern culture, especially by the, from the work of uh, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. But in Gnostic psychology, ego is not just one sense of self. It is a multiplicity. Every sentiment, every thought, every feeling, every memory can be associated to different defects, different selves, different fragments of consciousness, conditioned consciousness, that have trapped our soul. And as a result of our wrong actions in the past, we created these different fragmentations of self. And uh, it is by learning to comprehend these uh, individual defects in which we learn to uh, destroy them, to liberate the soul. And so the ego is, we say, refers to the, this plural, pluralized sense of self, this multiple sense of self. We could say ego is one, as an a ego, but also ego is 
the whole conglomeration of defects that we have, which is represented in the Bible by the story of Jesus exercising a, uh, a man who was possessed by demons, in which the man said, leave us alone, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, who are you? And the man said, I am le- legion, for we are many. It's a symbol of the nature of our soul. And it's not just a little history of someone in the past, but something psychological. So the ego, animal soul, we say it's animal-like because uh, it, doesn't, uh, it only seeks to fulfill its own desire, its own impetus. The ego, animal soul, has two traits that prevent it from good. Total preoccupation with cravings, attraction to pleasure, and refusal of obedience, avoidance of pain and harm. So there's this duality of the mind, meaning craving, aversion, to want to feed desire and then want to run away from pain. These are egotistical tendencies. When the ego is defined in the pursuit of desire, it must be curbed with the reins of awe of God, meaning the remembrance of the divine presence in us. This is self-awareness. When it stubbornly refuses to conform to God's will, it must be steered toward opposing its desires. When it rages in anger at being opposed, its state should be controlled. No process has a better outcome than the breaking of the power of anger by developing good character traits and by extinguishing its fires by gentleness. Which is why Prophet Muhammad said, the strongest among you is he who controls his anger. And Samael and Vior, uh, the founder of this tradition, the modern Nasser tradition, stated that kindness is a much more crushing force than anger. We can heal with compassion. We can disarm an enemy with kindness when it is genuine. And if the soul finds sweetness in the wine of arrogance, meaning an intoxicated psychological state, which is a symbol of not just physical drinking, but indulging in desire, indulging in psychological tendencies that are harmful, which make one drunk and unaware of oneself, it will have become incapable of anything but showing off its great deeds and preening itself before anyone who will look at it and notice it. It is necessary to break it of this habit, dissolving it with the punishment of humiliation by means of whatever will make the soul remember its paltry worth, its lowly origin, and its despicable acts. So humiliation does not mean we flagellate ourselves like certain sects, in the, in the, whether the Middle East or in, the, in Europe in the Middle Ages did. This type of humiliation is humility, to be humble. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or better said, blessed are the non-resentful, meaning to not harbor negative uh, uh, sentiment towards any other person, but instead to receive criticism from a state of humility. And it is a, really in difficult circumstances in which we are confronted with conflicts that we can attain the most spiritual growth. In a moment where someone criticizes us and we restrain our pride in order to not retaliate with our verb, we in turn can't, we develop humility. We recognize that sense of self that is attached to what this person says or doesn't do is really ludicrous. It, doesn't, it shouldn't have any hold on me. Instead, this defect is something that I need to work against. And in fact, the person who criticizes me is doing me a favor and is opening the doors for my spirituality. Therefore, I should pay more attention and work on my own sense of self, which wants to constantly react. And that is how we humiliate the negative self. We don't give it what it wants. Don't feed it. And of course, when you don't feed a desire, it comes back and it fights. And it becomes very uh, hungry, which is why this is a spiritual battle, a spiritual conflict, and a spiritual training. 
So uh, in this graphic, we have an image we study extensively in this tradition. This is the Hebraic tree of life, known in the book of Genesis, alongside the tree of knowledge. It's a symbol of states of consciousness, levels of and qualities of being, from the highest regions of perception above to the lowest level of matter, energy, and perception below. And then below we have this sphere, Malkut, which in Hebrew means kingdom. This is our physical body. And we're going to explain uh, the nature of this spiritual discipline in relation to this graphic. Because this graphic can help us to understand who we are, where we are, what we need to change, what we need to work against, what we need to work with in relation to the following quote. Whereby we study uh, the nature of controlling this, these animalistic tendencies, animalistic desires, which we contain within our subconsciousness in our lower psychological depths. So the following is given by a Sufi master by the name of Hujwiri, his book Revelation of the Mystery, where he explains how uh, this spiritual discipline is a matter of training the animality of the mind, the instinctiveness, the impulsivity of the mind to always want to satisfy its desires. Does not training, riyadat, this is is a Persian uh, word for riyada, the Arabic word for training, alter the animal qualities of a wild horse and substitute human qualities in their stead so that he will pick up a whip from the ground and give it to his master or will roll a ball with his foot. In the same way, a boy without sense in a foreign race is taught by training to speak Arabic and take a new language in exchange for his mother tongue. And a savage beast is trained to go away when leave is given to it and to come back when it is called, preferring captivity to freedom. Therefore, Saul, one of his, one, a Sufi master he's referring to, and his followers argue... Mortification, meaning striving or mujahida. Mortification referring to uh, uh, the humiliation of the ego. To confront the ego, to work against it, to fight against it. And to mortify it. And the word mort is the prefix for the word death. And this word refers to the death of those animalistic desires in order to perverse uh, the life of the spirit within us. So through death, we gain to spiritual life as Francis of Assisi taught in his uh, famous prayer. It is, in living that we di- it is in dying that we live and inherit everlasting life, he said. So therefore, his, ar- his followers argue, mortification, striving, mujahida, is just as necessary for the attainment of union with God as diction and composition are necessary for the elucidation of ideas. And as one is led to knowledge of the Creator by assurance that the universe was created by Him, so one is led to union by God or with God by knowledge and mortification of the lower soul. So what is it that we need to mortify? We were talking a lot about willpower. In this tree of life, we see at the very center of this graphic, the sphere known as Tifereth in Hebrew, which is, means beauty. It can also mean resplendence, splendor. This is the beauty of the soul. This is willpower. And it's the center of the tree of life because this is how we access either the heavenly regions above or how we give in to desires below. Below this sphere of Tifereth, we have what's known as Netzach, in Hebrew meaning victory, relating to the mind, to thought, to reasoning. To the left, we have the sphere of Hod, which in in Hebrew means uh, glory. This is our sentimentality, our emotionality, our feelings. Below that, we have Yesod, meaning foundation. This is our vitality, our energies. That which gives us strength in the morning when we wake up from sleep. Uh, that which allows us to physically exist. can also refer to uh, the energy responsible for our body for producing uh, 
uh, our biochemistry, our health, our catabolism, our metabolism, our uh, sexual impulses, the energies that give us life physically, etc. And below that we have Malkut, which is our physical body. So uh, above that, this sphere of Tifereth, this willpower, we have the divine spheres. Below that we have what we can call the inferior soul. Mind, thought, vitality, and physicality. These are things that we typically use in a negative manner. Meaning uh, whether we have negative thoughts, negative feelings, or we produce negative actions with our physicality, our body. Our willpower is our part of our soul above. And uh, we see that Tifereth is human soul. It is the capacity for genuine spiritual beauty. Because beautiful action is, is contingent upon this sphere of action. So remember that these are spheres of being, of consciousness, but also expressions of matter, energy, and perception. This also refers to different dimensions of nature, because our psyche exists in different dimensions. And even physically, uh, we see that we may be aware of thought, feeling, and sensation. Sensation, of course, relates to our body, but uh, thoughts and feelings themselves aren't necessarily physical, but we sense them. These are senses that belong to a different level of consciousness or, or uh, dimensionality, we could say, that all mix and penetrate and co-penetrate without confusion here within us, here and now. So this tree is not something outside, it's something inside, something psychological. It refers to dimensions and we can access when the physical body is asleep and we access the world of dreams where we can see these different regions of this tree of life in a more subtle manner. But this pertains more to our psych- psychology. Above willpower, we have the consciousness, which is divine, the divine soul. And then we have spirit, pertaining to our own inner God, our inner Buddha, our true being. Above that, we have this famous trinity known as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, it's Keter Chokmah Bina, crown, wisdom, and understanding or intelligence. And these are forces. These are not physical people, as the church teaches, but instead pertains to uh, uh, qualities of energy and perception that are very high. And so we have to use our will to control these lower spheres, to control our thoughts, control our feelings, and control our body in order to follow the will of divinity above. Thy will be done, the spirit and divine, the spheres above. Thy will be done on, on earth, this body, as it is in heaven. This refers to this graphic. And we'll talk more in depth throughout our courses about the intricacies of this image and the different levels and depths of this teaching. But here we're just giving it in a very synthetic way to give you some context. So we state that to strive against one's defects is to enter into contemplation. To contemplate the divine, to meditate on the divine, is a matter of uh, comprehension. Comprehension is a profound psychological state in which we access divinity here and now. And so the Sufis emphasize that if you want to know God, you have to fight against your own desires. And this doesn't mean to, uh, as I said, flagellate oneself, to become a morbid person, to become negative, to become melancholy or sad or dejected. Because if we look in the mind, we see there are elements that are very chaotic and that we don't want. But this is no justification for repression or for a, uh, you could say, a self-flagellating type of attitude. Like, I am a bad person and therefore I deserve to suffer. That's Totally not what we're speaking about. That is a, a negative attitude born from ignorance. On the one hand, there is the craving and aversion. There's two extremes. 
wanting something and wanting to reject something. These are qualities of mind that we typically swing back and forth between in our daily life, which is the pendulum that keeps us hypnotized, keeps us unaware. But consciousness and this striving against oneself is born from a state of peace, of equanimity, of self-awareness that is not uh, impelled or conditioned or manipulated by those different forces. Instead, it's a state of peaceful mind in which we can see clearly, oh, that this sense of anger is arising in me. I see it and I'm separate from it. And therefore, I can develop this opposite, which is compassion. Likewise, with fear, oh, I understand this element of fear is rising in me. Therefore, I'm going to remember my God, who is the life of the galaxy, of the cosmos, of the universe. Therefore, why should I feel insecure when divinity is, my own divinity is responsible for that, for the universe? Therefore, there's no need for fear. And then fear, nullified. We comprehend it. We understand the virtues associated or uh, trapped within that vice, you could say. For every, every uh, vice we have, every defect, there is an, a virtue we can develop when we extract the soul from that cage. So those who strive to the utmost for our sake, says the Quran, we will guide them into our ways. This is from Surah 29, or chapter 29, verse 69. Meaning, Whoever mortifies himself or strives against his defects will attain to contemplation. Furthermore, he contends that inasmuch as the books revealed to the prophets and the sacred law, Sharia, the introductory level of instruction, and all the religious ordinances uh, imposed on mankind involve mortification, striving against oneself. They must all be false and vain if mortification were not the cause of contemplation. Meaning, if your mind is chaotic... If you sit to relax and observe your mind, to meditate, you find that there are many distractions that emerge, whether it's uh, memories, daydreams, preoccupations, thoughts of what to do later in the day, what happened in the past, maybe resentments, fears, worries. These are all surging elements that, produce, that are chaotic. And of course, in the beginning, when we observe that fact, many times we become horrified that, well, this, is, this, is harm, this state of being is harming me. But instead, the truth is, we're just becoming aware now for the first time of our daily uh, daily mindset and one has to be brave and courageous to continue further meaning to not to uh, be dismayed but to have courage and strength in order to face that chaotic mind and in order to confront it to change it to achieve equanimity and so uh, it is with a mind that is free of desire of thinking of, of subjective sentimentalism uh, sentimentalism uh, feeling etc in which the lake of the mind can be uh, clear, pure, and pristine in order to reflect the starry images and heavens above. Anytime a desire we act upon in our mind or physically that is like a rock that, uh, that is like a rock that lands into the lake and causes a ripple. Yes. Ah, yes. And uh, it's like a ripple that disturbs the lake of the mind and becomes agitated. And likewise, we need to... Uh, uh, Learn to transform the impressions we receive in life with equanimity and uh, peace of mind so that that lake does not become agitated. When it's pure and peaceful, calm, serene, then we can reflect heaven above within our psychological interior. And uh, so again, both in this world and in the next, everything is connected with principles and causes. If it is maintained that principles have no causes, then there is an end to all law and order. Neither can religious obligations be justified, nor will food be the cause of repletion and close the cause of warmth. 
So there are, you could say, two levels of, uh, you could say, individuals, human beings. Those of uh, spiritual discipline and those who have attained those heights of contemplation. Which is why uh, the following Sufi master, uh, Abu Sari Mansur ibn Amar, said the following, All mankind may be reduced to two types. The man who knows himself and whose business is self-mortification, striving, and discipline. And the man who knows his Lord, whose business is to serve and worship and please him. Accordingly, the worship of the former is discipline, riyada, which of course depends on irada, willpower, spiritual will. While the worship of the latter is sovereignty, riyasat. The former practices devotion in order that he may attain a higher degree, which is the introductory level. We practice so that we can eventually experience that truth for ourselves above. But the latter practices devotion having already attained all. What a vast difference between the two. So, uh, one is the discipline of uh, the mind, and another is uh, a discipline of sovereignty. And a sovereign is a king or a queen of nature, a being that has fully mastered him or herself. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we kings and queens of nature? Meaning, are we fully masters of our thoughts, feelings, actions, impulses? Or are we impelled by them? So that's a question we have to ask ourselves in order to develop our spirituality. So we emphasize that uh, throughout these teachings that there are... uh, there's a difference between faith and belief. We say that uh, belief in itself is a concept of the mind, is a sentiment of the heart, feeling and thinking that something is true based, simply based on that, uh, that feeling and that thinking without, without having the experience of that truth. Now, um, we have to emphasize in this teaching that the willpower we seek to enact is what develops genuine faith. Faith is not belief. To believe that something is true is a concept of the mind or of the heart, a sentiment of the heart. Whereas uh, we say that uh, uh, genuine uh, faith is knowing from experience. You put certain causes in conditions, uh, certain causes in effect, and you will reap the result. Now, uh, based on this definition. We have the following quote from, uh, and we'll conclude here because uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, the Dayspring of Youth by the Master Moria. He said the following. Here we think a note upon faith should be of interest. Initiates or spiritual masters say that its meaning has been misunderstood. Faith, as the world uses it, possesses no spiritual nature. Though in the secondary system it means power and energy applied to action. All success in yoga, or you know, yoga meaning from the Sanskrit yog, to unite with the divine, or the, the Latin religare, religion, to reunite, the same meaning. This, uh, all success in yoga comes from this application. For the true quality of faith is a solar force that illumines the mind and attracts to it atoms of power and energy. More human wrecks have resulted from the misconception of this quality than man realizes. Um, Meaning, uh, it is not enough just to think that something is true or to feel something is true. Those are uh, subjective qualities of the ego. Instead, uh, faith is conscious experience. When we know something is true from fact, what we have verified, what gnosis we have gained. And likewise, uh, it is by applying our will to spiritual practice in which we can strengthen that willpower and attain genuine, the genuine heights of spirituality. 
which is why uh, the Apostle James stated the following in uh, uh, chapter 2 of his book, verses 14 to 17. What is a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother and sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, uh, this is uh, the Apostle James. Now, to conclude this lecture, we'll uh, end with a certain practice you can use to develop spiritual will and develop genuine faith. This is known as uh, the runic yoga in the Gnostic tradition. Now, the Nordic alphabet is an ancient, uh, uh, ancient letter system that implies a very deep yoga, uh, yogic uh, practice. Positioning the body in certain postures in order to sing prayer and mantras in order to invoke spiritual energies. Or uh, in this case, in this, mantra, in this uh, exercise we have for today, this is known as the rune dorn, in order to develop spiritual willpower. Or we could say Christ will. And Christ is not just Jesus, but the energy he incarnated, that higher three spheres on the tree of life we talked about, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that tri-unity, that tri-force, which uh, can enter into us when we are prepared. And with this Exercise, we learn to inoculate our psyche, our body, with those high forces, those energies. So what you do is you stand with your feet together, facing the east when the sun rises. So as soon as you get up from bed, face the east, put your left hand on your left side, your right hand on your right hip, and you pronounce the following mantras. Ta, te, ti, to, tu. Each vowel is prolonged. And now the sacred sounds, when you prolong them and make them vibrate in your body, they activate the glands. They invoke spiritual energies which will invigorate your will and help you to fight against that conditionality of, uh, and negativity of uh, the psyche. So uh, simply uh, this image refers to and looks like a hammer. It is the hammer of Dorn, the god Dorn in Nordic mythology, the god Thor, Unfortunately, uh, mimicked in, in Marvel comics now. But uh, this is a symbol of uh, superior willpower. And when you pronounce those mantras, prolonged, ta, te, ti, to, tu. Prolonging each vowel with your full breath. Inhale. Pronounce one of those vowels completely until your lungs are uh, exhausted. And then likewise with the next vowel, from ta, te, ti, to, to. That activates certain energetic centers in the body, in the psyche, known as chakras in Hinduism, in order to activate spiritual faculties. And so that is how we can strengthen our willpower and give you energy to apply to your spiritual life. So if you find that you're sluggish mentally, emotionally, physically, even if you get enough sleep, this is a very powerful practice that invokes those forces, especially if you get up very early in the morning, like 5 or 6 whenever the sun rises, and praying to the divine. You can place your hands on your heart. We do this in the Sufi style or the Egyptian style, right hand over your left, over your heart. And whatever words you have natural, pray to the divine. Say, my Lord, please grant me spiritual strength in my work in order to fill my heart and soul with, with peace and with energy. And then uh, do the mantras like this. 
the vowels. This is the, the runic language or the runic yoga, uh, which we'll be giving uh, courses about in the future. Do you have any questions? Wait, so we say each of those with one breath? It is uh, ta, one breath. And then the next, te, another breath, and so on with the rest of the vowels. And focus when you when you mantralize when you pronounce those sounds, feel the vibration of the the vowel in your own your own mantralization, and focus on the energies that it provokes. And you'll find that it can really it really will uh, especially if you practice in the morning. What is a good good to get up very early, and the energies are very conducive to meditate and to pray. That is why the Quran teaches you know the recitation at dawn. How beautiful is that to get up in the morning to pray and to. Uh, seek remembrance of the divine. It's very powerful. And simply you can do this for 10 minutes, you can do it for 30, uh, for however long you feel. There, it be done in the morning? It can be done in the morning. Uh, it's good at better in the morning, but you can do it uh, in the evening too as well, at night. But it's best, morning hours are always more conducive for uh, spiritual practice. And um, this develops Christ's will, the will of Christ, the will of the divine in us as it is in heaven. Any other questions? Well, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you for doing it. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at chicagognosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.